to another week here on The Hidden World. Today I'm speaking with one of my oldest and dearest friends on, well, all things 2020. We are calling this episode of The Hidden World, The Hidden World of Crisis, because the truth is, this is what we are all facing together this year. If we are alive and paying attention, I believe it's appropriate for everyone to understand that we are in the middle of managing a global, national, local, and personal crisis. My friend Shannon Davis joins us today as someone who has been forced to navigate so many of these collective crises in a deeply personal way. I am so grateful to Shannon for sitting down to talk to all of us about what she's endured, what she's lost, and what she hopes she and we can all gain by facing these collective and personal crises with an open heart and mind. Welcome to this week's very special episode of The Hidden World. So talk Uh, to me about what you're doing. You're talking to people figuring out how doomed we are. How doomed. Um, No, I am. So when I, I was listening to this podcast with um, Richard Rohr. Do you know who that is? Yes. And he was being interviewed by people that work at the Center for Action and Contemplation. And he he was talking about how during the Spanish influenza of 1918, Mm -hmm. everybody behaved so terribly when it was all said and done. that there's almost no time capsules in, you know, there isn't essays, editorials, movies, literature, because people wanted to get away from the shame, frankly. Yep. Yep. And so I started thinking, I want to talk to people that are psychologically sophisticated enough to have been able to stay with their feelings and take responsibility. Oh, you're right. You know, yeah. take responsibility for what's happening Be in and around. Honest. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you and I have a number of friends who either still live in New York or left New York. Majority left. Majority left. You yeah. among them. And yep. people that had been there for years, decade, you know, more than a yeah. decade. And, um, and so I, I actually mostly want to hold space to, to listen to what it was like and what it feels like to leave, et cetera, et cetera. All of the above. Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, I'll say it is extremely triggering to leave, I bet. um, for various reasons, starting with being, I was in Europe when everything broke out. That's right. And so by the time I got back to New York, I was already feeling the, oh, what's about to happen? Yeah. And then I got back to New York and everybody was still behaving as normal. I went to two workout classes. (laughs) Yeah, like we were like, oh, everything's fine. And then that same week we decided, okay, let's go ahead and close the office. Like maybe we'll be back in two weeks. Mm -hmm. No big deal. Like we thought 
just be prepared. It'll be temporary. Like nobody knew what was coming. Um, and like I had even that night, I went over to a friend's house to watch a show, took the subway home, <laughs> like business wow. as usual, because nobody had any idea what this was going to be. And I think that that kind of started everything in motion in terms of like the flow of a full pandemic. Like you experienced all the different feels of it. I was sick by that next week. I mean, it took a matter of days. I mean, I wasn't even back from Paris a full week and I was sick. Yeah. You were really sick. Yeah. And I had symptoms that lasted, like I had a headache for almost two months. It just never went away. Wow. And my body started like bleeding, which doesn't happen to me. Like I don't, I'm on, I'm on, hormonally induced into menopause yeah and all of a sudden so weird things were happening to my body too where I was like that's eh, not normal but also <laughs> New Yorkers aren't meant to be in their apartment no our part I'm sure dying of mold from being in my apartment I saw cockroaches I had a rat like things I've lived in my apartment for seven years and never seen the things that you see because <laughs> we're never home so somebody had asked me, what was it like? And I said, go into your closet, close the door, and then call me in 100 days. Oh, like wow. that is in a nutshell what it was like. Because for us, once things started going and we didn't have the mask mandate, and it was like all of a sudden the numbers blew up, we would decide to stay inside because it was really depressing not to. Yeah. I would try to go to the laundromat and it was closed. I would go to my grocery store and the owner had passed away or one of the workers had passed away or the homeless guy that sat out front. I, we just call each other. Hey friend. And I would get him a Coke every, you know, every time I'd see him, he disappeared or I called my tailor and he passed away. So it's like, it was just really, you would go for a walk. And in the beginning of it, we would go, you would walk past the park and they'd be turning it into, they'd be putting hospital beds on the field. And you're like, what? And then on top of it all, I live in Brooklyn in a Hasidic community where I saw the evolution of their experience <sighs> from the trailer right out front of my window to watching them get together for weddings and then watching them get together for funerals and then watching bodies being taken out of their buildings. Jeez. And I'm, so it's like you live, like we, I mean, New York is a very condensed populated area. You live on top of each other. And so there's not a lot you don't see. Um, and so it was just at that, at some point I just stayed inside and I didn't go out. Which like is, I would say, which isn't good because I was system at all. Right. Which is horrible. Yeah. You know, and I have multiple autoimmune diseases and like I started exercising, which was good, but like I needed fresh air. Yeah. But that's the thing. If I walked outside of my apartment, I'm in the middle of a Hasidic community where they don't vaccinate. They're not wearing masks. They're not following guidelines. And I'm like, ah, that, that like triggered so much. I mean, literally watching bodies coming out of their buildings because they were not, you know. Wow. So it was, you know, and then you try, and then you would go out and then you'd have your mask and you'd have your gloves. And it was just this like anxiety filled. And then you'd go to the store I tried to go to the pharmacy and there's a line down around the block. Like people were having to wait two hours to get into a Walgreens. And then by the time you get inside, the shelves are bare, Jeez. like bare. I have a picture of a shelf of like all the cleaning products and literally the shelves were bare. 
So you kind of were like, all right, I give up, like get your groceries delivered. I'm over it. And so what was the longest stretch of time that you were indoors? I don't know because I purposely did not want to keep track, but I definitely lasted a few weeks at a time. And then I would say, okay, let's get up. Let's go for a walk. Um, But then you would go for a walk and it was almost depressing because it was just really eerie. One, people started leaving. So there was that. I lived in a community that is in Brooklyn. It's lower income, lower income housing. So that was not the case. Yeah. There were still people out and about all the time. Um, But once we did get to, I guess, like June and my bosses were like, okay, back to normal. Let's go to work. Um, Because in the midst of all this, that was also after all the protests had started. So there was that on top of it, which I wanted to be a part of. And my doctor was like, don't you dare. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, don't, don't think so. So and um, I, my office is in Soho where a lot of the looting and things like that had happened. Like the entrance to my building was all boarded up because it was glass doors and that had been shattered. Like I tried to go get my prescription and the, the Dwayne Reed, their, their whole doors had been shattered and looted. And so that was closed for several weeks. So I would go to my office and everything would be boarded up. And it was just like, it, it, it was very surreal because you were like wow I've never seen Soho New York City I can't even imagine which is super busy with retailers and shoppers and like a lot of people just closed yeah. and it, it was a ghost town there was no you would maybe see two people on the street I mean it was unreal like yeah. one of the most populated areas of the city and so you're just like oh this doesn't feel good I'm I'm not really into this like apocalyptic kind of yeah it, it, that's literally how I explained it to people So I, um, you know, but also on top of it, you're stressed about your work situation. Um, So I lost, I mean, by week, like two of all of this, when this all started, I had lost 60% of my business. Wow. I'm in retail fashion apparel, which people were like, oh, yep, cutting back orders. I mean, I literally ended up, I probably lost 80K in income this year from all of this. Like I lost my job. So first I was furloughed and then I was like, okay, I'll apply for unemployment. Unemployment was delayed. It took, I think two months to even get a check or to get any money. And I'm thinking, how are people living off of this? Like they're not like if I'm not getting money, like luckily I'm okay where I don't need it right now. I'm okay. But two months later and I still haven't gotten a check. What are people doing? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that, you know, homelessness and evictions. Oh, well, that's the other thing. So then (laughs) I, when this would have been in July, and my bosses were like, let's get back to work. Everything's fine. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, So I I had walked to work one day, which took about two and a half hours. So I was like, I'm not getting on the subway. Like, we don't know what's going on. And when I was in downtown, I would say like lower east side area of the city. I mean, you, people were just in the middle of the street doing drugs. So I, I heard that from, you know, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he moved. Yeah, he moved. And I heard that from Aaron, who's yeah. also friends with our mutual friend, Allison. I, yes. I'm going to just say these names, but not their last names, you know, because they haven't consented to be a part of this conversation. (laughs) um, 
Um, I heard that from them too, that yes, it, it's actually sounds like it's been equally um, traumatic for them to see their neighborhoods like the Upper West Side and the West Village just have people just to walk outside and have people in the streets at like 3 p.m. in the afternoon on a Tuesday Middle of the day shooting up. Yeah, um, you're like stepping over needles on the street because they're yeah. just in the middle of the day. Yeah. It, 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 was a, it was very shocking. I mean, it's New York of 20 years ago. It was, it, it was, why? Well, yeah, 80s. Yeah. So. 40 years ago. God. It was, it was definitely, you know, I'm just walking in the middle of the street and they're just, I, I mean, and it's not just one or two people. I mean, you're seeing yeah. large groups because they're displaced. Like where are they supposed to go right now? And then what how are they supposed to do? manage the terror and dread of all that other than to find ways to numb out? Exactly. Yeah. I'm not condoning drug use, obviously. No, but, but I, I understand yeah. it. Yeah. Seeing the like surge of it. Cause I'd never, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like it before. It was very interesting. Yeah. And also, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I don't know. But I was just going to say, and also seeing the difference of policing mm. in the city, um, how they treated different communities, different areas in the city. Say more about that. I finally, after it had been, you know, probably 100 days or so, and a friend of mine was like, let's go for a walk down by the water in Brooklyn. And I'm like, okay. So we go over and it is a very gentrified area mm -hmm. and there are all of these people out at the park, picnic picnicking, no mask, hanging out, drinking, whatever. And I'm just like, oh, and police are just kind of walking around, handing out masks. And I'm like, mm, that's not what I'm seeing over on my side of town, which is where brown people live, mm. where I'm watching the police like stopping people and harassing them. Jeez. You know, where's your mask? What's and it's just seeing the difference of how they treated people on, you know, the upper east side versus mm. downtown mm. or in the poor communities of Brooklyn. Mm. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. You say interesting and yet it's like not surprising at all. No, not at all. Not at all. It's it's expected, but to see it so blatantly clear was like Oh, wow. Yeah. This sure. is just disgusting. But it is what it, you know. I know. I'm sure you've seen the video of um, that police officer in a, I think a Costco or uh, maybe, I don't know what store, um, where he's dis, he's like taking down a, a white man in the store. Have you seen this? I think it was Costco in the line. No, no. I mean, there's so many videos out. <laughs> but like, you know, this, this, you know, probably middle-aged kind of, you know, bigger sized, um, you know, like tall enough, broad enough, strong white man, I think was refusing to wear a mask or was caught shoplifting or I don't remember. But this police officer spends a good 15 minutes wrestling him to the ground despite the fact oh, that is like yes. hating back, re resisting arrest. At some point he gets the, the police officer's taser from Taser, him. yes. Mm -hmm. And still, and then a handful of black people come and try to like help. Mm -hmm. 
like help through the grocery store, help the police officer. And I watched it and just jaw on the floor. I mean, and maybe that particular police officer always operates that way with everybody. I don't know. You know, right. One viral video is not gospel blanket truth, but, um, it, it, we've seen so much in the past few years of black and brown people getting murdered for, for being unarmed and trying to walk away or just being seen. Yeah. There's a very similar video in a grocery store where there's a black man who they're detaining and there's like four police officers and they're kneeling on his neck and they're kneeling on his back and he's saying, I can't breathe. Like there's a very similar video that had a very different outcome. So not only were you at the epicenter of the pandemic in the U.S. at the outset, um, but you were in a big city where, you know, where there was a lot of demonstrations around police brutality, and you're a biracial woman where you've got this pandemic that's disproportionately affecting my community, your community, you yourself have an autoimmune disease, a couple, and, and you're having to metabolize and absorb all of these demonstrations and. And also mourn. It's also mourning and and also mourn. Yeah. Right. Like it was, it's a time of mourning as well. Alone in a, how many square feet? 300. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like literally you're in a closet, close the door. Okay. <laughs> and, and somehow what you've emerged sane? I think that it's more of if you, uh, there's already a level of survival yeah. that is instilled in a human being. If one, you live in a larger city, if two, you're a person of color. Yeah. Um, so I think that though that alone, you just kind of unfortunately adapt mm. because yes, the pandemic was new, but the other aspect of it is not new. Yeah. I think the only difference is, is because of the pandemic, more people were at home and exposed to things that maybe they had never seen before or they had never thought of before. Mm. And that's why I think this all was such a diff, like a different outcome of what has happened the last four or five years. I mean, how many years? Let's let's be honest. I mean, it's I mean it's four hundred years, but meaning of catching it on film. So, for me, it was like you know, I mean, I've been going to Black Lives Matters, you know, mm. protests or demonstrations for years. Yeah. Um, And then it was more so, I think for me, my experience was I'm the only black person that a lot of my friends know. That's right. And so my, I was exhausted because Mm -hmm. I was fielding hundreds of the, do you have any books you could recommend for me? Uh, uh, uh. I am so sorry. I know that I have been this person and I see all the things that I need to do in my life. And I just want you to know that I am going, me, me, I am going, my company wants to 
partner with an organization? Do you have any black owned businesses that you could recommend? Are there any people that I should be following on? So it was a lot of people. What charities do you recommend I donate to? And I'm like, really? <laughs> Can't Google. But it was, it was, it was a good like week and a half of that Shit. to where I finally had to just say, I'm not, I, I am not going to respond to you. I need to take this space, any energy that I have right now for me. Yeah. And I will talk to you later because that was more draining than the pandemic itself. Wow. Shannon. I mean, it was like, it was, it, it got really dark a few days where I just had to turn off my phone and just say, I cannot be this person for you, which is very hard for me. Yeah. That but is it was so much that it was almost shocking to me. And then the realization of like, oh, I really am the only black person a lot of people know. Jeez. <laughs> and I'm like, how is that even possible? You know, so then of course I'm going having conversations with my my friends that are, you know, whether it be not my non-white friends, let's just say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're having these really beautiful, deep conversations that like was feeding each other's souls. Yeah. Good. And then the and other side. White friends were trying to like leech information. Leech and suck everything out of you. Not intentionally. And I think it was a very good lesson. It was a very good lesson yeah. for a lot of, a lot of friends. They were like, oh, I did that. And I'm like, yep, you did. And they're like, got it. Like I'm aware now. And I'm like, yeah, like no, there's no hard feelings. It's human nature, but now we're all aware. Yeah. Man, you know, and I also just said, continue to listen, especially to the voices of black women. Yeah, please. Yeah. Check your surroundings. Check who you follow on Instagram. Check. Look at the companies that yeah. you support. Go to their Instagram page. Scroll through their pictures. What does it look like? Yeah. Like, yeah. just be more aware. Yeah. There is um, so much uh, unlearning. At, like, I can only speak as a white woman, but beginning to become aware of the role that, that like, you, yourself, m me, myself, I have played in, um, like, a white supremacist culture, right? It, it is, it, there is so much conditioning around, so much unconscious con psychological conditioning around that, that even in the unlearning, you wind up. Oh yeah. I mean, it's ingrained. You wind up abusing your friends. Of Absolutely. Color. Even in the unlearning, even when you're trying, right. you can still yeah. do damage. And but it that's is. That's just. Because there's been so, I mean, yeah, that's our system. It's been ingrained. It's the very, it's the roots. So yeah. it's going to take a long time and a lot to unlearn and recondition ourselves. But, you know, it, I mean, I think, and you said a key thing, I am biracial. Yeah. So 
Yeah. I have always had both sides of the spectrum. And yeah. for me, it was really, I mean, in the midst of everything, I had a family member who passed away from COVID. Right. She was in a nursing home. Yeah. And I just was thinking about her and like my grandmother and obviously I have conversations with my mother. I was raised by all white people. Yeah. White ladies. So to have white, yeah. And so to have that, that all love Jesus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a white Jesus place <laughs> right outside of my door. And I'm like, why Jesus? <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever. But um, it, it's an interesting, it made me really, because that all happened in the midst of everything. And it just made me think of the end of the day, um, you know, I think that we all can do a better job of seeing each other Yeah. through when people are in need, when people are struggling or hurting, or just like seeing another, I, I told you this years ago, I started to call other people when I saw them in my head, sweet baby, because that is somebody's sweet baby. Mm-hmm. And you need to treat them as somebody's sweet baby. Yeah. You need to have the awareness that however they are behaving, whatever it is, just treat them with kindness. Yeah. Because that's somebody's sweet baby. They may be going through whatever. And especially in times like now where you're reeling through all the emotions of the past year. Yeah. You know, after I gave birth the first time, um, when, when Evie was like teeny tiny and I, I had this just like massive, uh, it felt like I was born, I was born to, like I had, I was a new person. I'd never felt this way before. I'd never had this kind of devotion and love to anything or anyone. It was actually so disorienting that I was really kind of psychologically a mess, you know? Um, and, but I would, like if I take her on a walk around Chicago and I see people, I would I remember. I would see people and be like, "Oh my God, that is somebody's baby!" Like someone yeah. felt this way I feel about For that, person. that person. And I mean, I would I would walk around my neighborhood in Chicago and just like see people and smile and cry. <laughs> it was so crazy. It changes the way it changes your view. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, and also I'm a cynical, like jaded, tired human being with little patience. And so I need that reminder. That's somebody's sweet baby. Just. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it's, you know, I, I heard this a lot, um, in the aftermath of everybody seeing George Floyd be murdered. Um, when he cried out for his mom, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. think it impacted I mean, I think it really did grab the consciousness of a lot of mothers, right? And instead of just black and brown mothers. Oh yeah, white mothers too. Like I heard a lot of that. Yeah, um, which is, I mean, but like, hello, that's hello, right? That's all. <laughs> that's always been true. Yep. And yet, I think that um, in our sort of like patriarchal society, including our like patriarchal religious traditions that have shaped this Mm. society there is something really serious that's missing from our consciousness when we don't have a relationship with divine mother great mother right Um, it i think we can compartmentalize differently when the 
psychosocial spiritual structures are are kind of male and when there's when there's a feminine divine or feminine consciousness then there's more belonging there's more family there's more everybody somebody's baby there's more like the earth is is mother the earth is where we came from we're mm-hmm. absolutely yeah um and so when you talk about trying to manage your own jaded cynical side of yourself by trying to soften and see people as somebody's sweet baby it it actually rings for me as like a an effort to connect to that absolutely that's exactly i mean that's what it is because unfortunately like you said our current environment is not set up that way no on purpose on purpose a lot of that came into what we've all experienced in the past six months because at the end of the day when I did talk to a lot of people all they said was I just want to be with my mom I just want to be with my family wow I think it's interesting too because a lot of my friends live in other countries mm-hmm. and they I mean it's embarrassing oh. um they just think <laughs> I had a joke with friends that live in the Netherlands and they're like, do people think they can shoot the virus in America? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they do. Yeah. I actually have a client um, who's an ICU nurse who is from another country. I don't want to say which one because I want to be careful about her identity. Um, And she talks to me about um the american mentality of valuing this sort of like pretend notion of freedom freedom um Mm -hmm. and she said that in her country when she talks to people about this they will say things like what what are you talking about you you are free. You're not being, you're not currently occupied. There's not a war because that mentality in older countries with longer histories, they understand freedom is like a collective phenomena, not an individual. Mm -hmm. Not an individual. And and you're basically free unless you have an authoritarian government or you're being occupied by an authoritarian government. You know, it's so true, but I, I think, but those are the conversations I've been having. And while I I also think that it's Americans are very privileged and any ounce of inconvenience is taking away your freedom. Oh, yeah. And it is fascinating to me to watch because uh, it's really as simple. I was having a conversation with someone who happens to be in the household and currently staying in. Mm. And I just said, I just don't understand why it's such an inconvenience to do one thing that we are told will save lives. And that is wear a mask. Yeah. Why is that so hard? Well, because it's hot or, you know, I get out of the car and I go to go in somewhere and I forget it and then I have to go back. And I'm like, is that really a problem? Yeah. To maybe save yourself for another life? Wow. It's, it's just, and I'm like, I, I don't know if, you know, 
me seeing dead bodies for two months made me a little more aware that I can wear a mask. It's hot. It's uncomfortable, but it's really not that hard. My five and a half year old wears a mask for seven hours a day. At school. At school. Even on the playground outside in 95 degree weather. And no problems. Like, I do not understand this. She tells me that it's hot, but she also tells me that she understands. She and, hey, it is a, it is a learned behavior, I think, of many uh, Americans that we take an idea of safety and somehow twist it into someone taking away your rights. Yeah. And it is really shocking but I think too I mean I want to say that maybe that mentality will be changing but then I see all these kids in college and I think about when I was in college I wouldn't be you know you don't care so it's I I find that confusing you know I understand the psychological bias to assume you would have been more conscientious right but I don't think I would have been I don't do I think I would have gone to these like COVID parties where kids are getting together on campus, like getting together to see who gets it? No, I don't think I would have partaken in that, but I don't think I would have been conscious enough to say like, okay, I'm not going to get together with these 30 people and go out to a bar. I don't think I would have. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that either. Other than I did grow up in a household where, you know, my my parents put the fear of God in me so aggressively about all safety things. Oh, that's true. So I, you know, I mean, the way that they encouraged us to keep our seatbelts on was my mom told us a story about, (laughs) this is terrible. (laughs) I am laughing just because it's her vibe and that's funny, but the story itself itself is horrendous Um, about how she was in the, pediatric emergency department on a shift and a little boy came in um, to the hospital and um, he had been in a car accident with his parents and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt and he flew through the windshield. And she told us when we were little that his brains were coming out of his nose. Wow. And that'll do it. And so I'll do it. I'm, I have, I have full confidence that I, if I had been a college student, they would have like shown me pictures of 20 year old, lungs and what they looked like after COVID and, you know, essentially told me like, if I wasn't careful, something I did could kill one of my professors, you know, like they would have, right. They would have made it pretty real for me. Yeah. I mean, I made conscious decisions like what you're saying because of the fear of God that was wrapped in my brain. Yeah. Um, you know, like not to go to Rocky point when all my friends went or not to do certain things. So I would hope that I would have had an awareness, but I also don't have the guidance like you have from yeah. your parents in terms of things like this. Yeah. You know, I, mean, it, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, you were always so conscientious. It's, it's hard for me to imagine you being, I think, yeah, I was, well, I'm, I'm a little hyper aware. Um, I think I feel like I would have had enough of a reality check to know better, but, uh, you know. Yeah, you're right. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. We're all, be- we were all dumb kids doing dumb things yeah, at one point. I, I mean, not as much as other people, I will say. Yeah, but peer pressure but, did impact me. 
for sure. I wanted yeah. to belong. So Absolutely. If, if everybody that, that I wanted to belong with wanted to hang out in groups and that was the way that I could feel my belonging, I probably would have done some things, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, belonging is very motivating for me and sometimes has led me to make terrible decisions. So it's getting better over time. I think yeah. the more you really belong to yourself, it's easier to be. Right. Well, well, I was going to say. Well, fuck it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That changes when you finally realize, oh, wait. Yeah. I'm, I'm home in my own. I'm, I'm my own being. Yeah. And belong. And there's, if I have, right, sacrifice um, an honest part of myself in order to belong, that price is too high. Yeah. Yeah. But But I think that's a long uh, educational experience of life. (laughs) But I also, I think too, like another thing that I learned through all of this is I, and people would just assume I'm an extrovert. Oh, Mm. but I'm not. I'm an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Yeah, you are. I know that about you. Right. But, but you're for a long time. And so fun. And can right, for the party. Yeah. But I recharge being alone. Yeah. Wow. And so I think that that was another component of all of this that was really interesting. And I think about, because when I was in college, I used to always think like, I have to try. I was, I wasn't the same I was very much so always out always around people never alone and I think that when you're put in a situation where you are alone you really learn is this something that is bad for my brain or good for my brain Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question about that much alone time mm -hmm. because for I can for myself you know, I, I have a husband and two kids in the house, so I, I wasn't alone ever, Never. but, but, um, I also didn't have the regular distractions and routine to kind of keep me feeling like, um, or to help me avoid certain things. And so I do feel like it would, this particular season, you know, mid-March through present day has been psychologically confronting for me and for all of my clients yeah where I I come the metaphor I used early on was normally you can put like your shit or like your shadow like the shadow stuff in your psyche the stuff you don't really want to look at normally you can like put that in your closet and doors closed have a dinner party go to a thing book club go to exercise class whatever and, and I felt like I would try to put it in the closet and it would be like, no, bitch, I sleep in your bed now. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have, We're having breakfast together. You got to meet me. You have to look at this and take stock. Mm-hmm. You do not have the typical, you know, metaphorical playground to project this onto other people. You have to own. Sitting in it. You're <laughs> so, just marinating in it. Yeah. So being truly alone, the way you were, I wonder if you had the same experience. Okay. Oh, yes. It was a moment of just like sitting in it going, oh, this is heavy. 
it's all here. It's all I have to do. <laughs> what did you do? I mean, um, it did get dark for a little bit where I was just like, I'm just going to lay in bed for two days. Wow. Yeah. There's, there's levels of anxiety and depression that all just decided to ball up and yeah. sit. Wow. And yeah, it, it definitely, there was a, there were some dark days where I was like, oof we're going to have to do something about this because it's a little bit over when you have nothing else and no one else mm -hmm. around you, you only have yourself and all of your things mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. And it can be, and it was, and it was, it was a really good experience, I think, because we're normally always so busy, mm -hmm. never taking time. Um, but I had a lot of time just to really, I guess, really think about how am I living my life? Mm. What am I doing with my life? What am I, like, in terms of behavior? Mm. What have I been doing that's gotten me here to sitting by myself alone? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Hating my life, like, all of the things. Yeah. And what types of experiences am I having in terms of people who are calling me and talking to me? And our interactions, like really becoming a little too aware of all of the things that I do on a daily basis, how I interact with others, and having a moment to kind of look at it from the outside in and go, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing this. Wow. Like it was almost like a, a really good therapy session for me mm. to have a moment to think about all of the ways and things that I do that I maybe need to work on. Yeah. And it was because you, you're not distracted, like you said, by everything. And I think, you know, I have several things that I'm like, ooh, ooh. Like, for example, I had a Zoom birthday call. Mm -hmm. And it was really traumatizing it. to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was started off with a couple of my friends from college who were like, we're going to set up a call and it was just going to be us. No big deal. Cause I'm like, this was in May when nobody could do anything or see anything. Um, and I wasn't going to like go out and meet people and I get on and surprise, there were like 30 plus people on the call. And I was like, Oh yeah, I've been alone for almost three months, like maybe think that that may not be the best thing for someone mm. mentally, just to be like, Oh, there's 30 plus people all looking at you on a screen and all on a screen and all going around one by one talking about you and how much did it. And I'm just like, it was overwhelming and it was extremely triggering for me. Um, but I was like, this is the perfect example of how I get myself into these situations where I have these friends mm -hmm. who I am their closest friend. Mm. They are not mine, but I am theirs. And I planned their baby shower and I planned her bridal shower. And I was there for that person for this or that. And I'm like, but, but there's nothing. You haven't, you do a lot for people, but you yeah. keep a guard up 
and, Absolutely. and don't necessarily let them really, really in partly because you don't always trust them. Well, I don't trust them, but also a lot of times, do I even really like them? <laughs> Meaning like they're nice. We're around each other. We're maybe in circles, but there's nothing inside of me that is fed by being friends with that person. Damn. And another component of that was my one friend, the only other black person on the screen, literally texted me and was like, you're everybody's token black friend. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Shit. And that also, you know, I think. For you since childhood. Since the beginning of time. But it was also a really intricate, because he was like, well, that was kind of, he's like, I've never been around so many white people before. But it was an interesting realization of who am I spending my time with? Mm. How am I spending my time? Like, what is it that I'm doing that's putting me in these, you know, it was a very, it was also an interesting situation where the, the person who kind of hijacked the whole thing wanted to do something super nice for me, which was very sweet and is an extremely giving person and had sent me, you know, like a gift basket and an Uber and had decided because some of my other friends had forwarded me some of the messages mm-hmm. and there had been a conversation about, well, we want to link instead, you know, instead of us going out and buying drinks out for your birthday, let's give money to a charity or would anybody in Shannon's family maybe need the money? And I'm like, Oh, what? 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 I'm sorry. What? What's going on here? This is so weird. So weird. So weird. And then leading to deciding that here's a charity that I've never heard of before. And asking people in the middle of, you know, a lot of people were living in New York, like asking anybody in the middle of the pandemic for money to, to donate in my name and then create a whole um, picture board of this charity event, which is Brown Girls Dance or something. I don't even know. Oh, sweet baby. And then, yeah. And then taking a picture of me and my sister and my niece and posting it <gasps> on social media channels oh. that we donated for her birthday to this organization. Oh. And I'm like, they were oh. just actually trying to do something for themselves. Yes. Uh, well, like, yes. like but a- I, white look at what I did white people saving my brown friend oh my god Shannon and I was like I'm gonna need a lot of time away from this person oh yeah maybe because this here on out this is grounds for I don't want to talk to this person ever again oh god yeah like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> but that was part of, and then that, but of course that was May 20th. And then the next week. Oh yeah. So it was a great start to thinking about race. So, right. But also how I interact on a daily basis when it comes to race and who I surround myself with and what conversations I have and what conversations I don't have. Yeah. Because a lot of times I'm, it's not my responsibility, but I probably should have deeper conversations with people to say, when you say this to me, I don't like it. Yeah. And these are the reasons why. Yeah. (laughs) 
and you've told me that before. Um, you've said things to me like, there's a lot I haven't told you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. There's because I don't have those conversations with my white friends or family. Yeah. I just don't. And then and it's I, like, I always think in my head, like you and my heart, you like, you can tell me anything you want, but I don't want to ever press because I don't know if that will feel like emotional labor for you. Right. And, so and I, I think that that's when I'm figuring out, like, when do you say things and when do you not? Yeah. And for me, not for the other person, yeah. but also, yes. but also I had a conversation with my cousin about this because it's the same scenario. Yeah. He was raised by his white mom and, you know, and he was like, we need to start. We talked about starting a podcast because we have the ability to talk to everyone. You do. You should. And we have a very safe place that we can create where we can have these conversations and there's a need for it. Yes. I would love to listen to that podcast and yeah. then it well, would be rewarding for you because hopefully you could get some kind of advertisement buy-in. And so you're not just doing free labor for everybody. It's not free labor. Right. Yeah. yeah. But also we both agree. It's a very, with, our middle ground of mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. and also the religious components of our background yeah. in Christianity mm -hmm. that we have some things that should probably be discussed. You do <laughs> because you also, like you said earlier, raised by women who love Jesus, oh, but so much, but have a real white Jesus. Oh yeah in their hearts and minds. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is, mm -hmm. do you know who Christina Cleveland is? Sounds familiar. She's a public theologian. She's a I black. I've listened to a podcast. Okay. I don't know. I've never listened to anything that she's said. I mean, <laughs> I've just read what she's written. I'm like mm -hmm. the only Patreon thing I subscribe to. Um, and I follow her on Instagram. And she writes, she worked at Duke for, or like in their graduate divinity school. And I think her background is maybe Methodist. I could have that wrong. But mm -hmm. she, um, she's a black woman and she writes um, about, she calls it Jesus, our black mother. Um, or no, I'm sorry, Christ, our black mother, not Jesus, Christ, our black mother. Ooh, even and, deeper. Yeah, yeah. And she writes and creates art and tells stories and they are so perfect. It's really, really good. And I think that only very recently have has there been, you know, I know that, ha that there's, there's always been in non-white traditions, an understanding of black and brown Christ, black and brown Madonna, you know? Oh yeah. Oh, but yeah. I think it's only recently kind of walked its way into, over. into some white, like Christian consciousness. And a little. Uh, yeah, a little, and, but I find it personally more compelling than anything out there right now. 
Oh, absolutely. I made a comment to my mother that <laughs> Jesus is a black woman. Just in passing. <laughs> yes. Just for just for kicks. <laughs> and her response was, that is blasphemy. Oh. And I said, Oh, is it? There's an understanding that obviously Jesus was not white. But then I walk into the house and there's a dish with white Jesus on it. Ugh. So it's like, oh. She's like, he's kind of brown. I'm like, oh, that looks like the Euro really purposeful white supremacy version of. Yeah, there was a painting. It's like a very famous painting in my grandmother's um, upstairs hallway of a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure those were circulating in my my family's household. Oh, I guarantee they are. Yeah. And I don't know I, about blonde, but that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I get, she was Scandinavian, right? And I get that we right. make God in our own image. I think that that actually. Sure. If that's we, more of it than anything else. But if we can understand that that's what we do, that we yeah. make God in our own image, then there can be a little space around it. Right. And, and there may be a recognition <laughs> that actually, if God is real, you know, God is infinite and therefore beyond image or and that is actually part of like Yahweh's commandments to Moses like don't right concretize literalize draw me name me actualize or narrow me into some sort of defined finite idea because you will then miss me completely yeah Bingo. Yahtzee. Oh, actually, I take that back. I didn't say Jesus was. I said God was a black woman. Yeah. That's what it was. I'm, I'm down. That feels yeah. I mean, that's more right to me right now than... Well, that makes me more interested. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't have much to say to like an old white man in a cloud. No. And I've had... That was the thing. I had lots of those conversations because Shannon's not out working or traveling. So you can call her anytime. Woof. And have these conversations. But oh, I, do you think that you worked so much and traveled so much in part yes. to boundaries? To avoid people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. I am not available because I am not here. I chose a profession where I traveled 75% of the time and I could float in and out. My aunt was like, I, we call you a mermaid because you just kind of pop up every now and again and then you go away. You're like this mystical creature. Yeah. Well, you because are. Because it was my way. Wait, I just said you are a mystical creature, and I want to be completely clear that I, that's not me being like magical black woman. Oh, <laughs> did not assume that, but I'm glad that you clarified. You who you are, are. This. Understood, but I appreciate the clip note. <laughs> no, but it's, it's 100% that was how I set my boundaries. I do not live next to certain family members because that is a boundary I have to set. For sure. I have limited time for everyone mm -hmm. because that was a boundary I had to set. Mm -hmm. But you know, when you're home in the middle of a pandemic, anybody can call anytime. Wow. What does that look like now that you are back in Kansas City? Oh, also tell me what I want to talk also about what leaving New York felt like. But first being back. So everybody keeps saying, how do you feel? And I think that 
there's a numbness that has mm-hmm. entered my body that is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. I do not currently have feelings. Yeah. Because it's been so much mm. and very stressful mm. that I don't know yet. And I have arrived home. I've been living by myself for the last eight plus years mm. in a box in New York City. And now I have arrived in a house, this space. Um, it's currently under construction. Um, we're getting some things ready for the house to sell eventually. Um, and I arrived and there are no doors. I'm sorry, what? There are no doors. There are no doors because in rooms? No. Correct. <laughs> I Shannon. What? And I was like, this is a test. <laughs> because they were painting and they took the doors off. And the doors have been ordered, but they are not here yet. I have a sheet over my door because I require my own personal space. This is a cosmic joke. This is the universe LOLing at me because there could be nothing worse to me than not having a door to close. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, Ooh, this is good. This is exactly what I need. I mean, I literally, my mother the other day had to say, the door is closed. You just say it. The door door that's not is closed. Yes. I said, it is closed. This is so good for you to have to verbalize. Yeah. I mean, without just being able to, I have to say things. Damn. (laughs) But I was like, Ooh, this is good. Like just throw me into the pool, learn how to swim real quick. All right. Yeah. And it's, and also an interesting dynamic for other reasons um, because of the dynamic of the household and who lives here currently. So there are many layers to what that is. Um, But if you're going to move away after a deadly pandemic, for six months, just jump right back into your childhood experience of your childhood. Yeah, exactly. Do it. It's a great idea. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So that's also why I have decided, I mean, I've like protected my body you to give it a moment. As you need to be numb. You I have, have to be. Dissociated yes. for a bit in order yeah. not to flood yourself. To- to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to do until I can't anymore. Yeah. And I am going to help and do all the things that need to get done. And then I will move on. Yeah. Well, so the ICU nurses, there's a handful of ICU nurses that I see for therapy now. They talk to me a lot about essentially like chronic dissociation. Mm-hmm. They're because they are in active trauma. They're in it. So you know, typically, normally, when I work with people, we are on the other side of trauma. So we're trying to carefully, slowly, like unfreeze the the body and the feelings, like to, um, you know, um soften, come home, 
touch some things that have been shut off for a while, reintegrate, et cetera. But right now, when they talk to me about dissociation, the truth is that I'm, that I often am like, well, that's great. (laughs) That's what you need to be doing. Actually, I don't say it quite like that. I, you know, we talk about (laughs) like levels of this, you know, where if you're starting to have nightmares or you're really fatigued or you're having headaches or your body hurts or you have intrusive thoughts, then the dissociation is not serving you. Right. So, so how do you make space for like just enough processing, like just enough? So one of my nurses, she's essentially writing these letters, you know, to, mm. to patients who have passed. Um, so Love that. Give them to them, right? It's for her. Right. It's for her. She's yeah. processing just enough, but she kind of like sets a timer and she spends time outside and then she tries to do something fun with her family. So she's, she's still trying to like keep enough dissociation that she can make it mm-hmm. through this terrible nightmare. Yeah. Um, and she can show up to work and be functioning. But then also enough feeling that she's not completely overburdened with unprocessed shit. Yeah. But also keyword doing something for herself. Yeah. Yes, you're so right. Yeah. It's for her. Yeah. Okay. I think it's time to talk about dissociation and its implications for all of us right now. For those who may be unaware, dissociation is simply a state of being disconnected. It's a mental or psychological process that often serves to protect us from something that feels too overwhelming or traumatic. Sometimes you hear people describe dissociation as if they were watching themselves from above or from outside of themselves. Or maybe they found themselves just going through the motions without allowing themselves to be emotionally connected to what was happening in front of them or around them people who serve in the military often have this experience. Um, Folks who've been assaulted talk about this. But it can happen in more ordinary um, moments as well. Maybe somebody's yelling at you and it's too much to bear and so you kind of leave. Just leave your body a bit or shut off, turn off, numb out of your emotional responses. Dissociation can be psychologically protective in a moment of crisis. It's the thing that maybe allows us to get safely out or safely to the other side of an overwhelming experience without having some kind of psychological break. Typically, in my work, I work with people after they've experienced overwhelming or traumatic events. And because these traumatic experiences are located in the person's past, eventually, we often work to carefully and slowly reintegrate the emotional material that had been dissociated during those experiences. However, 
given the reality that many of us are actively managing an ongoing global and personal trauma event right now, I think that most of us will find ourselves dissociating from time to time. And that's okay. It's especially okay if we can be aware of it. And in a perfect world, as we start to become aware that we are doing this, we would also ask ourselves if we might need some extra mental health support to help us walk through the extraordinary difficulties so many of us are facing this year. Sometimes I have to be forced into making a change and I needed to hit the reset button and rearrange to where I'm supposed to be. And this was that catalyst. Wow. Was it difficult? Yes. Mm, Did I have the mental or physical capacity to do it? No, but I also know that I can do anything and I get things done. Yeah. I I just thought about you. I just started the motions of, wake up and do it and get through it and keep going. I always say, keep on, keep it on. Keep on, keep And on. so I did it and people were like, how did you do that? And I'm like, I really kind of almost black out and just go through the motions, just do whatever I need to do. And I'm resilient and resourceful. So I was able to figure it out. Yeah, you are. And yet listening to you right now, I feel a bit sad. Like, I hope that you land in like a really safe space soon and maybe maybe that is in that includes like that you're there are some relationships that allow this for you where you can actually not be super resourceful and resilient and you can be vulnerable and just need and I can really important really important let someone help me yeah no shit that's it that's what it is is I will open myself up to letting someone else help me do anything. Yeah. Even when I people offer, I know, even when I said, can I send you some wine and like, a like a nice yummy meal for having this conversation with me? You were like, Nope. Nope. But why not? Cause I don't need it. Well then what do you need? That's what I'm, that's the, the big key realization of that's what I need to pay attention to. Okay. Because I've operated in a way for so long because I lived in a hard city and I was on my own that I fulfilled every need by myself and didn't really think about, well, what else could life look like? And that is a very good lesson that I learned during all of this. Wow. That's a big Being one. Being by yourself isn't all that great. No, and it's it, not it, how humans were made. Oh. And now I And now I know that. And now I have that realization. There's actually... Um... A neurotransmitter, uh, I'm going to say this wrong because this isn't my wheelhouse exactly, but there's a, there's some sort of like chemical that gets created in the brain Mm. when we don't get enough human eye contact and touch. Oh, yeah. That actually causes us to feel like we have done something wrong, that we've been like exiled Mm -hmm. from the community. It's very primitive. And it makes us paranoid about ourselves and paranoid about other people. I believe it. And it's, I think it's a big reason why everyone's at their worst right now. 
Exactly. We're all, we're all living how we're not supposed to be living. It's not normal. So we're getting the other word normal. Yeah. We're getting, but it's it's literally making people lose their shit. Yeah. Like contact with reality. I have watched, I did watch a good friend of mine has spiraled during all of this. Yeah. Into complete and utter. uh, I don't know if he's going to be able to come back from this because he relies so much on his connections with others through his profession, through his social, through his world. And this triggered something that created a monster. Oh, no. And it's been very challenging to watch in ways that I never thought a grown human being. Mm. I don't even have the words because watching it was so sad. And I've been talking to that person's significant other who's also deeply concerned, but we, Mm. I, you know, just mentioned, I think a really hard part of all of this is when you're talking to someone through a screen or you're Mm. going about your daily life through a screen, it's not the same. Mm. And this person lives their life solely with connections to other human beings. Mm. And when that was taken away, they didn't know what to do. Mm. Of course. And they started. It's so understandable. Absolutely. But it became this like, so what did they do? They started drinking heavily or maybe dabbling in some drugs or doing all these things that would normally never take place. And it was a little shocking. And I was like, well, of course because the structure of your mm-hmm. life has been, has exploded. Yep. So then you too are going to explode. Yep. Substance abuse is way up. Domestic violence is way up. Violence. Mm-hmm. I, we are, um, one of the organizations I work for, we are currently kind of negotiating a contract with a particular branch of a particular branch of the U.S. military. And they told us that um, essentially like suicide completions are up 300%. Wow. I believe it. Substance abuse, again, similar stats, domestic violence, drug use, reckless behavior, you know, because isolation is so bad for our psychology. Yeah. And also... Unfortunately, like I would wake up in the morning and be like, what do I have to do? Too early to start drinking? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I know someone who lived in New York. They don't anymore. But they wound up doing like MDMA and Molly in their apartment just to have, oh, yeah. just to have you. I know several people who partook in those activities because yeah. they were like, I need a break. Yeah. I, I need to feel good. Mm-hmm. And as I'm so sympathetic to it, even though I know that that is not an ideal way to move. Right. But it's, yeah, I get it. I did not partake in those activities other than drinking a bottle of wine a day and then going, Oh, wait, let's not do that. Um, but I understand the mentality behind trying to reach that place of peace. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the first like eight weeks of you know, lockdown, I actually, I could not, um, I could not watch television. I could not drink alcohol. I could not 
have too much caffeine and I couldn't stay awake late because I felt so, so dysregulated by any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that like, I felt like I had to treat my body like a, like a little kid and be like, okay, it's, it's time for a snack. Okay. It's time for some water. All right. It mm-hmm. is bedtime. No, you know what? No more screens. You're doing your job on screens. You can't watch a movie. Like it w- I mean, I was so, okay, let's go outside and let's just lay in the grass. You know, it was really very, oh, so it was the most tender I've ever been to myself Right. out of desperate necessity. I finally, after a hundred days, I went to, my friend was like, we are going out of the city. You've got to get out of that apartment. Right. You did that. And I rented a car and we went to the Hamptons and stayed at someone's home. So it was just us at the home. And we went out to eat in Montauk because you could eat outside. Yeah. And it was like, whoa. Wow. Wow. This is nice. Yeah. Oh, God. But also my anxiety is through the roof. So yes, thank you. I will have another cocktail and another. Yeah. And another. Yeah. There is going to be so many. um, I mean, I think that we're all going to have to be processing this for years because. Oh, it's going to take years. Re figure out how to renegotiate um, interactions in the outside world, even after a vaccine is effective, I think will be like very bewildering for our what we've conditioned ourselves to to now think is frightening yep Um, yeah because I get absolutely like we went to our neighbor's pool with the kids and it's like they're in the pool the adults are keeping distance we're all outside and I say I yeah I still felt we saw my parents the next day and, and I felt you felt it. I felt so anxious around them. Right. Yeah. Like this nope, absolutely. Maybe we shouldn't see them anymore or take two weeks off. Or mm-hmm. even though I understand the science of what we did and that it was fine. Totally fine. Yeah. It it was working against that hypervigilance that I've really used mm-hmm. to stay safe for the mm-hmm. past six months. Um yep. was a, like hard adjustment for my brain i'm walk, walking around my house with a mask yeah because yeah. i traveled through atlanta and i was next to thousands of people and some people wearing masks and i was like well yep yeah i get home but i think what's interesting too is i saw something the other day and it was saying like let's really put this into perspective we have been mourning 9-11 for 20 you know however many years i saw this i shared it yeah and 2700 people died and it was something that deeply mm-hmm. affected everyone's life we all remember all the details of it and now i mean we're we have 188 or you know two it'll be 200,000 plus deaths from this yeah and people are just kind of like this is sig- significant and we need to make sure that we are treating it just like well, that we're grieving that we're grieving we're taking the time to grieve we're as we're taking we the time as we go and then, and then that we, we, uh, I hope, you know, I hope like, well, that we get a different administration right. for so many reasons, but one of which so is, many reasons. I think that a Biden administration 
will understand how to create a national space for grief. For grief and also for hope. Like we need to stop with the fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to grieve mm-hmm. and we need to say, okay, now. Now what? Now what? Yeah. It's interesting because I, I um, went out. It took a few days before I left the house after getting here because it, it is triggering to be around other people. Sure. It just is. And also my mentality is, are people really doing what they need to be doing here? I know they are in New York. I trust New Yorkers. Do I trust people here? Not really. So, you know, it was, it took a few days and I drove down the street, which also is another experience driving. Wow. Go to the grocery store, put groceries in your car, drive it home. Oh, life is so much easier. Um, and it was uh, it, uh, like a house next door to my mom's house and they have a Biden-Harris sign in their yard. Nice. And it, but like for me to see that, I was like, one, I feel safe. Mm-hmm. Totally. And two, oh, that gives me hope. You know, but it's an instant thought of safety was what was interesting that that's where my brain went first. Oh, I, I find that incredibly compelling and relatable. But my, I imagine that for you, that feeling of safety is even more significant. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh, I can walk outside. <laughs> I can, so, um, I can be me. Yeah. My, in my neighborhood, um, and around, you know, the, the closer you get to the city in sure County in these suburbs, right. the closer you get to the city, the more liberal things get, um, not completely, but there's more. And it's so interesting because, you know, like, Eight years ago, 12 years ago, there, I don't think that there was like a ton of Obama. Obama. No. Down around these parts. I didn't live here, but I don't no. think so. No, no, we both didn't live here, yeah. but we can assume. And I did visit and I didn't see it, you know. Actually, no, I was here. That was the year in between living in New York and Chicago. In uh, 2008, eight. I was here and because I went to, I saw Michelle Obama speak in the crossroads in wow. Kansas city, um, which was just the best. Um, so anyways, now there, there's not just Biden Harris signs everywhere and like Barbara Bollier and, uh, um, oh, right. you know, Sharice and Ethan Corson. There's like a lot of those signs, but there's also a lot of like you're fired Trump or like pictures of Biden's face, just smiling or signs that say by Don and like <gasps> their swoop, like people are mad. <laughs> like, and to see that in like the white suburbs is there is a ton of black lives matter signs, not just signs, but flags, banners, stuff stretched across people's yards between trees. Like, we're like, not seeing any of that things like over on this side. We'll do better. Black Lives Matter. And it's it's like Fairway, Roland Park, mm, you know, Mission the Younger, Fairy Village, Mission. It's Oh, I'm not seeing any of that over here. None. Some Overland Park, but more like old Overland Park or, you know. Because I've basically been in Shawnee and in Olathe and I have not seen 
well, any of that. I think Olathe is not in the same mental space. As no, they are not. I'm seeing the opposite. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Which is fascinating. Yeah. That, that to me is like just that there's not that much distance between mm-hmm. where you are. 10 minutes. Yeah. And there's a totally different cultural reality. The divide. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Tell me to kind of wrap this up. Tell me one thing you wish everybody knew. About in general about or about or about this experience you've lived through. It doesn't matter. It can be anything. Oh boy. Hitting me with the hard one. Um, I think that one thing I wish everybody knew history. We will survive this. Accurate history. Accurate history. Yeah. The notion of when we are living in this doomsville of everything's bad, everything's horrible. We're never going to like look at the historical accurate history of life. And we see these waves Mm. of ups Mm. and downs and highs and lows. And there's Mm. a streamline of history that shows that this is how the world operates yeah and this is a low that's good and so a high is next that's good maybe not this year maybe not next year but I think it's really easy for us to tell ourselves like to kind of I think it's selfish. It's just how our brain operates to not be able to think outside of this tiny window of time. Maybe we'll make it somewhere better. Gotta start somewhere. Keep it moving. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Telling you. I love you so much. I'm so glad you're back in town. I can't wait to sit outside with you and drink cake bread Sauvignon Blanc soon. Yes. Count me in. Okay, I'll text you. I'm glad you're doing this. We'll make a plan. I'm here. Okay. Love you. Bye. Lots of love. Bye. Gosh, I am so grateful to Shannon for sharing her life with us so openly and honestly today. Her courage and transparency about how hard things have been and what she's done to manage all of that are an inspiration to me. And also a good reminder that building resilience can be both messy and meaningful at the same time. I know that I need more permission to be imperfect in my own struggle for sanity during these difficult times. And Shannon really reminds me how to give that to myself. Thank you, listener, for being here with us today, too. I hope this conversation met you right where you needed it to if you are also struggling through the pain of 2020 in your own ways. I look forward to being with you again next week when I talk to my new friend, Jeremy, about the hidden world of psychedelics and plant medicine. It's going to be a bit trippy. The Hidden World is produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written by David Gomez, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves. Bye.
Nanti jawab.